You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Our guest on this episode just can't leave well enough alone. He co-founded Indie Hall, Philly's first co-working space in 2006, and kick-started the co-working boom that has exploded today. In 2009, he co-founded Stacking the Bricks with Amy Hoy, where they taught creative people how to bootstrap their own business. Since 2019, he's been working tirelessly to help 10,000 people become sustainably independent by 2029. Through the 10K Independence Project, he and his collaborators are taking on the issues that hamper entrepreneurship, such as access to affordable health care, skill building, legislative support for solo businesses, and more. He's a serial entrepreneur, but not a jerk. I love that part. And he shares his experience and opinions generously on Twitter, where the 100 tips that make up the book he recently authored, The Tiny MBA, first appeared. You can add him at Alex Hillman on Twitter. Here for your listening pleasure are the self-made strategies of Alex Hillman. Let's dive right in. How did you come up with the idea for the Tiny MBA to begin with? Did this this is a, an awesome compilation of sort of your thoughts and your musings on sales, business, all of your experience, and you're very well experienced. I mean, you went from being a solopreneur slash freelancer, whatever hashtag we want to use doing your own thing into deciding that, well, you still wanted to be around people. So you started Indie Hall, you co-founded it. So you've had all sorts of really unique business experiences. And then this all kind of melted down into this. And how long was this project in the back of your mind? Well, I've been asked I countless times, I guess, when are you going to write a book? Uh, you know, uh, or I'll finish up a conversation with somebody, some coaching advice, or just having a beer with somebody and they go, that really needs to be in a book. And I've sat down to write a book, like I'm sure plenty of other people have. And turns out it's not very easy to sit down and write a book when you get it in your head that I need to sit down and write a book. Part of that is, is because we have a lot of expectations about what a book is, especially a business book. And I know you read lots of business books. I've read my fair share. You start getting an idea of, you know, it needs to be this like breakthrough original idea and lots of stories or everything I know about a thing. And like, I don't, I didn't feel like I, I was contributing when I approached things that way, or I would start and get stuck or I would start and I would write a whole lot of stuff. And I'm like, nobody's ever going to read through all of this to get to the maybe nuggets of truth or value that are inside of it. And I think that's true of a lot of business books. Uh, there's kind of two categories of business books, I think. Um, and obviously there's outliers to this as well, but many business books fall either into the everything I need, everything I know about a thing. So like the textbook approach, right? And it appears to be deep, but in fact, it is, it ends up being kind of one note. Right. It's because the odds of that person's experience being the same as your experience are not really very good. And you don't really get the, an understanding of the underlying decisions and strategies and goals that led to doing the things that worked for them or even deciding what would work or what to try, things like that. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got books that could be blog posts where it's one, maybe a couple of good ideas wrapped in lots of stories to help you connect with those ideas. Of course, that's really important to help them stick in your brain. That's important too. But 
how often do you spend three, four plus hours with a book to walk away with one really good idea? And by the way, that's a still a very good ROI on a, you know, a book that's probably going to cost you less than 20 bucks and a few hours of your life. If that one thing is useful to you in your life or your business, that was worth it. However, now you also need, you know, the that thing that you learned to line up with the thing you're experiencing. And now it might be many months or years or if ever before you actually get to apply that useful piece of knowledge. So that's sort of the landscape of books that I see and I experience. And uh, I'm curious about your impressions of the book, because I think it's clear to you, this book is neither of those two. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because I didn't set out to write a book in the first place. I sort of took a challenge to write down 100 things. And I don't even want to qualify it as more than a thing, because some of it is an observation. Some of it is advice. Some of it is a hard learned lesson. Sometimes it's things that I've seen other people get wrong over and over. Sometimes it's things I've seen people get right over and over. But the, the sort of banner of these hundred things was what are a hundred things that I could tell someone about business and not just about business and business success, but a specific category of business success, which is building businesses that are built to last. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, I'm interested in helping people create sustainable businesses, create jobs for themselves. There's this like dominant narrative of whether it's tech startups or just, you know, VC and investing and, you know, building and selling companies and all those things are great and all. But I think because that is the dominant narrative in the world and in, in culture, people forget or maybe simply don't even know that that is the outlier, not the norm. The norm is small business. The norm is an individual creating a job for themselves and maybe a handful of other people. The norm is a business that they run for quite a while and maybe near the end they decide to sell it, not because they're looking for a cash out, but because they're looking for the next phase of their life. They're selling the business because they want to sell the business, not because it's a marker of success or the thing I'm supposed to do so that I can have it on my resume. So the 100 things that I wrote down were to kind of express that perspective of what I think business is for way more people than are actually attempting business because I want more people to try and start businesses. I want people who start businesses to realize that they are in control of the choices that they make and that there's more at play than maybe what is meets meets the eye when all of your exposure to business is through books and magazines and blog posts and even movies and TV shows and things like that. So the book didn't start out as a book. It started out as that collection of 100 things. But when I shared that collection of 100 things, people were like, yo, this is more valuable than the last three business books that I read combined. Uh, you know, I would happily you know, I wish I could share this. I want to revisit it. And that was when I decided kind of after the fact, huh, maybe maybe this is the book that I've been struggled to create up until now. Uh, and I just got to figure out how to package all this stuff up into a thing that looks and feels like a book. Well, I first of all, I think you've done an awesome job. It's very approachable, I think, for people of all different backgrounds, like you said, anyone who's potentially thinking about doing something entrepreneurial. So maybe not even a business owner, right? 
Um, I, I recently did a, a recording for Thomas Jefferson University. I have a, a buddy from high school who teaches there and asked me to do just like an hour on entrepreneurship for the students. And I started out by defining entrepreneurship. And we started with the Google slash Oxford dictionary description of it. And, you know, it's very just bland and businessy, right? An entrepreneur is basically a business owner. And what I posed as a question was, is that really true? And I think your your book actually subtextually does a really good job of pointing that out, that there are other issues here at play that have become so mainstream the the you know this concept of oh any business owner is a quote unquote solopreneur or artpreneur or we're basically just slamming preneur on the back of any word <laughs> at this point and calling it like this this thing but being entrepreneurial is different and to that end I think you're you're right you hit the nail on the head you you looked at okay what do business books look like you know they're they're either this one concept that could really just be a blog post and, and kind of truncate it. We were talking about this before we hit record, right? That I'll listen to audiobooks super fast the first time around because a lot of times it is just that. It's a collection of all these ideas that are presented well or sometimes way better elsewhere and they don't really, you know, present a new idea. So I like how you've gone against the grain and taken an entrepreneurial approach to authoring a book where it's more just a series of thoughts. It's super approachable. You can pick it up and almost like a, a calendar type of thing, just read a page a day and kind of reflect on that. Or or if you're kind of trying to figure out, you know, I'm having some issues in sales, there are definite thoughts on that as well. Um, what was your your biggest hurdle writing this book and and kind of putting it down and then releasing it? Well, I think my biggest hurdle was actually at the end there, and and it's something that's come up a, a handful of times in the last month or so as we've been sort of wrapping up the design, putting the little bits of fit and finish, getting ready to launch, and then putting the thing out there. And there were sort of two parts to putting it out there. One was actually, you know, making the link public and saying, hey, gang, you can go buy this thing that I made. And then there was, um, you know sharing it with a sort of a trusted enclave of folks uh, as including, and I should say that, that includes some strangers. Uh, I, I extended my trust to some strangers to say, you don't know a whole lot about me. I want you to read this book and I want your honest thoughts. And so to get those honest reviews before the book is technically in any paying customer's hands was important to me, not, not just from a sales perspective, but for the reason getting back to your question is I didn't know if people were going to get it. Because it is kind of weird and it's tricky that, you know, especially the paperback. And if you were to pick up the paperback, you would expect a book inside. And once you get past the forward and the preface, which I think at this point do a, a good job of setting up what comes next. If you skip them, you're going to be very confused because the inside of this doesn't look or feel like a book. And so I was the hurdle was definitely in my head of the self-talk of, is this really enough to be a book? Is this really going to help people? Are they going to take away from it? Not only what I hope that they do, but what will they take away from it that I hadn't planned for and, and I hope is good. So, you know, the early feedback that I got from those sort of beta readers and review readers, uh, thankfully exceeded expectations 
it's still, I still have that stupid little voice in my head that says, you know, there's now 1300 people that have paid to receive this book. Are they going to feel good about their purchase? And I won't know until, you know, a few days from now, after you and I are done recording, when those paying customers start receiving the digital copy and then next week, the paperback. So hopefully by the time folks are listening to this, uh, the book will still be up and for sale and I haven't been chased into the hills. Uh, but, but and, and you, Tony, you're not just being nice because the truth is, is I think the, the feedback I've gotten without really telling people explicitly what to do has been more like what you're describing, which is people being pleasantly surprised that they could finish the first read in 30 minutes, maybe a little bit longer if they decided to take notes along the way and realizing Maybe the, the, there's two pieces of feedback that I got that were the most exciting to me. One is this made me think. This is a book that I want you to read and think, not just kind of like Netflix, you know, let it wash over you like watching a Netflix show. And the second was that they were excited to go back to it. Like you said before, the idea that this is a book that whether it, you build a habit around just picking a few random pages because each page is kind of self-contained to read through them and use it as a, a prompt or some people have compared it to like the Zen cones, which I think is really cool as a tiny little thing that you can use to just kind of jog your brain and spark new thoughts and ideas. I don't want to prescribe how to be successful in business because I don't think you can. I don't think it's possible. There's way too many ways to do it. But what I do think is possible is to give people a set of tools to frame their own thoughts, frame their own experience, frame their own resources, and use all of those things to make decisions that are going to suit them and the business for the long term. So, you know, I didn't want to spoon feed that too much because I think that undermines it as well. But it definitely felt like a risk to put this kind of unusual book out into the world and hope that people get it, like it, and want to come back to it. Well, first of all, thank you for even considering me and sending me uh, an early copy to to review and to come on for coming onto the show to be able to talk about it. I feel honored. I genuinely admire all of the cool stuff that you do. And I really want to get into the 10K independence project uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode after we've covered the book, because I want to hear more about that. And hopefully there are people listening who will want to get involved and help out with that project as well. That sounds um, great. Yeah, I love I love everything you do. You're super involved in the indie community. No pun intended. I know it's called Indie Hall, your co-working space. Um, and it, those who are interested in hearing more about Indie Hall, I love Indie Hall. I'm a member myself, but um, you can go back. Alex was on the show previously and we talked pretty pretty extensively about Alex's entrepreneurial background and Indie Hall, and I highly recommend listening to that. But I, I just found it really, really fascinating that you came out with a book. And I think people like us who are, um, I, I hesitate to use the the term that we referred to earlier. It's almost like Voldemort to me, right? Um, <laughs> I, I hesitate to call myself that because it's almost like the, the um, you know, jinxing yourself in a way. But um, I think people like us who are kind of tinkerers and are very curious and like to try new things and kind of test their and push their limits 
are all interested in writing a book. So <laughs> at, at some point, right? I, I know I myself and a lot of the other individuals that I interview on the show either are in the process of writing a book or are thinking about doing it or have already written a book. So I admire you for for accomplishing that initial hurdle. Now, now that you've gotten one out, uh, what was the biggest challenge? And then secondly, are you already starting to think about a second book? So with the book out, I'm I'm excited to I, I'm I'm excited to just have the book in people's hands. I think that's that's really the thing that uh, I can't I can't really express what it felt like to get even the test copies and and to have because I've I've written lots of things. I've written many 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 books worth of words. So writing is not new, and I've shipped products that people have paid for. That's not new either. We have a successful product business in stacking the bricks, and obviously Indy Hall does well too. So that wasn't new. The new thing was creating this physical token and knowing that now there's the ability for anybody on the internet to go and buy that thing and have it show up on their doorstep literally anywhere in the world. Uh, the first time I, I made, did a Google map of all the delivery locations where the books are going to kind of blew my mind. Again, it's like it's exciting. It's kind of intimidating. You know, in terms of what's next, I'm thinking about how the book can be used as a tool, right? So one of my goals is this book is, again, to spark thoughts, but I also think the book can spark conversations. And that's kind of what, what we're here to do, right? All the podcasts that I've been on talking about the book, you know, happy to talk about the bookmaking process for people that are interested in it. But I think there's way more people who are just interested in learning these nuggets of, of business or connecting with people who have similar shared experiences. And so if I can use the book as a spark for conversation, you know, whether it's bringing back a, a podcast of our own, or I've actually been chatting with somebody about helping us spin up a, a live stream on Twitch and having a Twitch channel that is for, want, that is designed to build a community of people who want to build businesses in this way. And it's not about the book, but the book becomes kind of a tool for catalyzing those conversations and you know the the word of the day the theme of the day the page of the day is people can know what that is ahead of time wake up that morning spend a few minutes thinking about it and then come join us on the twitch stream and talk about it talk about how what you know stories of their own it reminds them of or you know good experiences bad experiences what mistakes they've made what they learned from it what they would do differently for the newbies how does that make you think about the where you are in the process and how you'll make decisions going forward. So that's got me really excited. I'd also say, I think, again, if, if folks are into this tiny format where every page is kind of its own self-contained thing, we can uh, come up with other things like this besides business, or we can go narrower into subsets of business. So Amy, my business partner, wrote a similar collection of 100 things about design, mostly software design, but not exclusively. So we could do the tiny software design book. We could do the tiny marketing book. We could do the tiny RV trailer camping book. That's not something I would actually write because I don't know anything about it. But I think there's a <laughs> format to play with here that we've never had before. And again, I'm I'm excited to get it in people's hands to hear how they use it, what they do with it. Do they keep it on their desk 
so that they can come back to it? Do they put it on the end table so they read one before they go to bed? Do they keep it in the bathroom to read while they're going to the bathroom? Like, I, I don't know. But that's one of the cool things about having this new thing out there. Once we start hearing that, I feel like we'll get some better ideas about what comes next. But I think we've got, you know, the business is called Stacking the Bricks. That's the name of the business is also a metaphor. You build a wall by stacking bricks on top of each other. This book is a literal brick. You you know, you could build a wall with the books, but following the metaphor, uh, it is a brick in a potential wall of new ideas, new products, new opportunities, new ways to connect, new things to create and sell, new businesses. I don't like are people going to read this book and finally start the business that they were thinking about starting or take it to the next level, in which case, what will the map of businesses that were created influenced by this book be? I don't know. But to think about that is kind of exciting. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And it kind of resonates with all of the stuff that you've done to this point. You you're you love building communities and you genuinely do. do. You you created Indie Hall, obviously, and then stacking the bricks um, also evolved from that. And then you've taken the podcasts that you've worked on and other projects that you've worked on and created different forms of content so that people can literally go onto Indie Hall's website and read all of the posts that you've written on these types of topics or listen to the podcast or do all of these other unique things that bring all of these uh, thoughts and ideas together. And I think the book, to your point, is just a continuation of that. And I think it's really cool to see that evolve. Yeah, me too. And Nilfer Merchant writes the foreword to your book, which I, I actually found really entertaining. It's short and bite-sized, kind of fits the book. And as you said, is a great lead into the book. And in her foreword, she calls it the anti-MBA. But as she puts it, you're not really an anti-anything. You're a community builder, as we've said. So what's the objective that you hope to accomplish with this book outside of, you know, people just, as you said, picking it up to read it and to kind of provoke this thought about entrepreneurial ideas? Is there sort of a grand goal that would fulfill you from this book? Uh, yeah, I love that. Nilifer's forward she sent me and I literally stood up out of my chair, put my hands in the air and said, yes, out loud. Because <laughs> uh, it's so on the money and she's wonderful. And I want to plug, she has a, a column uh, called at work, atwork.substack.com, I believe. If you search Nilla for Merchant, it's also linked in the book. I'll put uh, it in the show it, notes as well for those who are awesome. listening or watching on YouTube. And Nilifer comes from a a background. She's very much a creative person and a creative thinker and an innovative thinker. She comes from sort of big corporate management and she has an MBA, which is part of the reason I asked her to write the forward was to get her perspective and maybe again, stop me before I hurt myself if this was a terrible idea. Uh, and she loved it. And the, her point about it being an anti MBA, but not anti as in against MBAs, because I think there's a place for an MBA and there's value in getting an MBA for a person with specific goals. I think about it, it's almost more like an anti-hero. It's sort of the complement uh, in the story. It's the yin and, and yang sort of thing. And so this is perhaps a, a practical complement to the functional models and structural strategies of an MBA that teach you here is how to run a business. I try and frame this as more of teaching people how to think like a business person, 
which I which I think is is a subtly but important different thing. In terms of a a bigger picture goal, I'd say there are two. One is this universe of teaching and sharing what we know about business that Amy and I have built through stacking the bricks. We've been doing for over a decade and we know how to reach the people that we know how to reach because we follow our own advice and lessons and staying focused. And the audience that we know best is sort of online creative people, designers and developers prominently, but other online creative people, you know, podcasters, videographers. If you can make stuff and put it online, we know how to speak to you. We know how to reach you. But there's a much wider world out there that includes those folks that we don't know how to reach because they're not already in the communities that we're a part of. They don't know our names. They could hear about us and go, who the heck is that? And that's fine because it's a giant world. I don't expect us our notoriety in one community to translate to another, right? However, I think it's really exciting to think about Uh, You mentioned when we were getting started for the call that you're thinking about people that you could gift this book to. That is a really cool distribution channel that we've never had before. We have a book that somebody can read and go, this is useful and makes me think of somebody else who would find it useful and inspiring at book price point. Therefore, it's a good gift. And I would add it's a short read that you can revisit over and over and over and over and over, which makes it a excellent gift by comparison to many business books that you might get 50 pages in and never finish. You took the words right out of my mouth, not to interrupt, but there's frequently been the opportunity. And I just want to say this to touch on that point that I've gifted a business book to a friend or a colleague or someone else who I think it would benefit because it meant something to me. And often they go, oh, thank you. And you just kind of get the sense that they're probably not going to work their way through it. Right. And this is completely different. I couldn't agree with you more. This is something that you could almost kind of flip open in front of them and say, hey, I caught this cool book. And in your case, I would say that a friend of mine wrote and uh, check this out. You can flip through this and just read like one of these a day or when you need some inspiration. And it's great in that context. And you could even like flip open to the page that made you think of that person and go, I was, I thought of you when I read this. And again, that page is self-contained. They can glance at it. It's the size of a a post-it note. So I think that's, that's really cool. And that again is, is from a business perspective, an opportunity for us to reach a much wider audience than any means we've had up until this point. The other part of it, I think is maybe a bridge between what I was saying before about that sort of commonly held perspective about what business is in 2020, whatever year this is now that we're living in right now, (laughs) Uh, in the weird year of 2020, business means a certain thing. And I I believe because 2020 has been the year that it's been, that's shifting for a lot of people. And I think there's a, uh, this, I started working on this project before the coronavirus pandemic, but I think this book instantly became at least a few notches more relevant for the many people who are out of work and will stay out of work until they choose to create a job for themselves. The people who have maybe been curious about entrepreneurship, but now that they've lost the job that was had them feeling safe, what have they got left to lose but to take the supposed risk, the quote-unquote risk of starting their own thing. And and in the book, my goal is to show people that it's not as much of a risk as you might think it is if you keep certain things in mind, if you make certain decision, decisions, 
and keep certain priorities. So that's a, a, a bridge to the 10,000 independence project, which we can go deeper on in a minute. But I think it's where if this is in the hands of more people, that's good for our business. But I also think it's good for business culture broadly and at, at the risk of of making that sound like it's about my own ego. It's not because I want people to have my ideas. These aren't my ideas. These are ideas that I've collected and scavenged from across my experience. I've read the hundred plus business books to learn or sat through the conference talks or figured out a way to get access to the expert or mentor to ask, or I watched what they did. And I feel very fortunate. I've had a lot of privilege that has gotten me access to a lot of those things. There's a lot of people that don't have that. And if this book is a tool, it will, I don't think this will be the tool for anybody, but it can be a tool and a toolkit for folks to inspire them to say, wait a second, this version of business that Alex is talking about sounds like a version of business I can get behind. Uh, I'm not into becoming the next Jeff Bezos. It's more like I want to be the, the, the person who runs the corner bodega. I have a healthy business that provides for me and my family, employs some people in the neighborhood, lets me sock away some money for savings. And if I'm doing all of that, I can do that for the next 10 years, 20 years, or until it no longer makes sense to. And I felt like I did something worth doing. And if I can get that idea in, in more people's hands in general, but especially now, I will feel like we we've accomplished something that uh, I'll look back on and feel really good about. Yeah. And I love that you're always outwardly focused because it's something that I kind of pride myself on at least trying to do. No one's perfect, obviously. And every once in a while we get caught up in our own noise, but I love that about you. Uh, one of the quotes to that point from your book, and this is from page 23, if anybody picks up the copy and I highly recommend that you do, and you want to just flip right to it. And this will also be a good example of how bite-sized these are. This is page 23, the feast famine cycle of freelancing is a symptom, not a cause of an unsustainable business. The first key to unlocking sustainability in business is learning to spot or create more durable sources of income. And that's exactly your point. You don't have to be Jeff Bezos to create a scalable and sustainable business. It's really more about mindset and execution, right? And some mix of diligence and resilience to deal with a lot of the beatings that you're going to take along the way between those two. But it's it's it doesn't matter if you're a one person shop or if you're a 20,000 person shop. There there are differences, but overall, that is a, a, a concept that can be applied to those forms of business. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Let's let's shift to some of the quotes that I think were thought provoking to me, and, and I want to kind of get the story behind where some of these came from. One of the quotes from the book is that most business decisions are relatively reversible. If you have a decision that doesn't seem reversible, try looking for ways to shrink that decision into smaller parts. That way, it's cheap or free to undo the decision if things don't go the way that you expect. Is there a story behind how you learned that particular lesson? I, I just found it really interesting. I mean, I've seen it a million times, and I think everything you you just described from that that page is 
kind of at the root of what most visible failures in business are is you made a decision that either was too expensive or painful to roll back or you were unwilling to roll back. Most things can be undone. There's important things that can't be undone. But I mean, I, I can speak to one of the things that is in, in my business experience, I think often most often misunderstood, which was when I actually left my full time job to become a freelancer. I think this is like the first step, right? People quit the job to start a business. Or you're laid off because of COVID-19 or any, any, (laughs) any parade of situations. And by the way, quick sidebar before you go into that story, I could not agree with you more that people who work for other people are in air quotes, safe environments. I have a lot of friends right now who work for companies who are saying to me, I got to tell you, I'm really concerned. I mean, what's going to happen six months, nine months, 12 months down the road? And these are very talented, hardworking, intelligent, creative people, and they're fearful. Yet, you know, my wife and I, who are both business owners, I won't use the E word, business owners, and we have our own things going on to a degree. Yes, we're all fearful, right? there's, There's a lot of uncertainty right now. But to a degree, at least we feel like we're in control of our own destiny. Every once in a while, you do feel like you've been hit in the face with a mallet, but you know, you you just get up and at least you know, well, nobody's going to fire me for making a mistake or because the economy tanked or because something else happened. I have the opportunity to go out and at least give it my best shot. But go ahead. Well, sorry. Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that, though. I think when you have when you have a job you can always blame somebody else's bad decision for your situation. When you are self-employed, you can only blame yourself for your bad situation. And I think the key is being able to take ownership for that is it's not as straightforward as it seems. It is a practice. And, and I think the thing that people forget is if you want to own the upsides, you also have to own the downsides. And learning how to do that is, is I think really key to it is like, cause you will get knocked down a peg from time to time. You're not, in, you're not in control of everything. I'll go even further. You're not in control of most things. That's right. So if that's true, you're not in control of most things. Who do you want making decisions in your best interest, you or your employer? And that's, that's the way I break that down. If bad things are going to happen either way, who's looking out for me? Exactly. Me or some other person. Well, ideally, it's me. Um, but getting back to to the you know to leaving leaving a job to go out on your own, people always say you know well, wasn't that a big risk? And I think of a very specific conversation I had with my, my girlfriend at the time who I was living with. Who I came home one day and I said I'm going to quit that job and I'm going to do the freelance thing full time. And she said we're going to live in a box. And <laughs> and I was like we're not going to live in a box because. I've been freelancing on the side. I've been moonlighting for the last six months. I know how to do work and get paid for it. There's things I don't know how to do. There's way more that I don't know how to do than I do know, but I've also seen myself learn things. And so if I know I can learn things, I can figure out the next thing. I also have a couple of professional relationships that I've now proven that I'm reliable, which means I can go to them and say, hey, I'm looking for work. Do you have any opportunities or who should I talk to? I'm not entirely self-reliant. I am interdependent with other independents. 
And the final clause of that statement and what really set her at ease and what I wasn't sure how to communicate until the the end was the worst case scenario here is, is I go back and I get another job. And granted, that was a time then and this is a time now and that environment is not possible for everybody. If you've already lost the job and can't get one, well, then the worst case scenario is, is you still can't get another job. But the upside is, is maybe you started something that takes you a few steps in the right direction along the way. So I look at it as an, uh, 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 an equation of sort of capped downsides. The worst case scenario here is, is I can't do the thing I thought I could do. But the worst case scenario is, is I can go back to the thing I was doing, which either wasn't that bad or is exactly as bad of the situation as I have right now. So I'm back where I started. I'd prefer not to be, but I'm not going to be worse somehow. I don't owe a bunch. Of, I didn't take out a bunch of loans to start a business that would leave me in a worse situation. So that's why I think building a business with the means that you have is, is so valuable. Um, but that the potential to prove to yourself, screw everybody else, prove to yourself that if you try, you can and, and you set an in, a small incremental goal that you can learn and you can grow. and that if you kind of fall in love with the learning and growing part, you'll never get bored because the challenges never stop coming. Uh, you never make all the problems go away. You just trade smaller problems for bigger problems later. Exactly. Uh, and I think just you know, approaching it from that practice perspective, my dad growing up was, was, on, was an entrepreneur. There was another you know, advantage that I had and a privilege that I had I was even seeing an entrepreneur in my life. There's so many people that don't see it up close and personal. I did see it. I saw the good stuff and the bad stuff. I saw the money stress in the house, but I saw my dad happy with what he was doing. And my dad, for the first leg of his career, was a chiropractor. And chiropractors and most doctors refer to what they do, and lawyers too, as a practice. It's a constant evolution. And I think more folks could do well to think of their career or their discipline or their business or their creations as a practice as well, rather than a transaction of do work, get money, do work, get money, do work, get money, because that is what we are trained to do. That's the exchange we are trained to understand. But if that's the only exchange you you actually practice, well, you only have so many ways to grow. And back to the point of control, you're always in limited in how much control you have because you're reliant on somebody else to decide how much money you're worth and how much your time is worth. And so once you start to extract yourself from that relationship, uh, then you start seeing, oh, I have infinite possibility so long as I get one thing straight, which is knowing who I serve, I guess two things, who I serve and deeply understanding the problems I have. If you get those two things even kind of right, you are worlds ahead of everybody else out there executing on an idea or their passion or anything along those lines because the money is made, not just in the moment, but in the long term by serving people. That's it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm just going to summarize because I took us off on a tangent and you did bring us back, but I want to make sure that those who are listening aren't being right. driven crazy by the uh, the monkey mind inside of my head. So basically what you're saying is when you take on an entrepreneurial pursuit, if you have decisions that you think are relatively irreversible, what you need to do is break that down into smaller decisions and put it into that perspective that is, you know, okay, what's the worst case scenario? First and foremost, I couldn't agree with you more in there. Subtextually, you mentioned that basically you had started your freelancing career kind of as a side hustle before you made the decision to take a leap. And I think in our culture, there's a lot of misunderstanding and it's starting to go away finally, but there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of focus on these hero stories and only on the successes and people misunderstand the fact that, for instance, Bill Gates was still in university when he started Microsoft. Um, Facebook, same thing. These people that people hero worship, oh, they quit university to go off and be an entrepreneur and then they were a huge success. They hedged their bets. Do your research and check it out. Almost everybody that's been successful started it incrementally and said, okay, I'm going to do this on the side and kind of. A, B test or figure out how to execute at a high level, like you said. And then once the machine has some momentum, that's when I'm going to take the leap. And in the context of those who unfortunately are in a worse off situation, they've been laid off, they've been fired, whatever the situation is, to your point, there's no way to go but up from there, right? While you're waiting for another job to kick up, go look into that side hustle you've been thinking about starting. And I, I love one other point that you mentioned about your father being an entrepreneur and how you got to witness it, but that a lot of people aren't that fortunate. Well, the piece of advice is you probably know or follow on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever, some entrepreneur, right? That's got some success and some experience. And you can reach out to them and the worst thing that they will do is maybe ghost you, which kind of sucks, or maybe they'll say no. But more often than not, if you ask somebody about their perspective, that's what I do on this show. I interview yeah. entrepreneurs like yourself and we've you'll be 86 or 87 and we've had huge success with people just saying, yeah, I'll come on your show and talk to you about how I started my business and the pitfalls and this and that. Find a mentor, find a source of information. You don't have to go it alone so that you can avoid some of the common pitfalls and somebody else just to not let you get stuck in your own bullshit and say to you, you know, don't do that. You know, that may sound fantastic to you, but are other people going to pay for that? There's one of your one of your quotes, and I'm actually remembering this off of memory, is something along the lines of, and I promise, by the way, not to release all 100 quotes on, on this okay. episode. But um, but one of your quotes is, uh, people won't just pay you because they like you. It's because you bring some economic value to them, that they're willing to exchange money for your product or service. It's all about them. Right. And one of the quotes right. I actually have up on my screen that I, that I also love is if you mostly attract lousy clients or cheap customers, I have some bad news. You're the <laughs> common thread. So you're probably doing something to attract them. So it's all it's all really useful advice about how to execute on an entrepreneurial level. I love that last one. Uh, 
I've I've given that a line like that so many times, and it's one of those things that nobody likes to hear it. But once you hear it, kind of the the clouds part, and or it's like the movie where they play back all the scenes, and you know you you knew who the killer was all along, <laughs> sort of thing. And like once you see it, you're like, ah, uh, I'm such a knucklehead. And the key here is is to not be, beat yourself up for being a knucklehead. It's to go, oh, I get it now. What do I do instead? And not be precious about those mistakes. And I mean, going back to your point about, you know, the the entrepreneurs who hedge and do things incrementally, it's not about taking risks. And some people would say it's about, you know, de-risking things. And I think that can be kind of true as well. I think it's more about understanding what a risk really looks like Mm -hmm. and the difference between that and uncertainty. And uncertainty is everywhere in the world, including in, in business. And you can't avoid uncertainty. All you can do is play with the cards you've got, make the most educated decision you can, and then use what you learn, which can be your own execution. It can also be others to say, okay, now I have a bit more certainty. I might still feel uncertain, but the evidence shows that I'm like all the bad customers are showing up. I'm the common thread. That's not because I'm a bad person. It's because I made a decision somewhere. What would better decision be? And that becomes, you know, back to your point about mentorship, asking a mentor, what am I doing wrong is a little useful. Asking your mentor, what are my options is a much more interesting question. And it again puts you back in the driver's seat of making those decisions yourself. That's the kind of thinking that I see from successful business people. They're not following someone else's playbook. They are constantly building their own. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to take people through as they're as they're reading this themselves. Yeah, I love that. So one last quote, I promise. And that this isn't a direct quote, but a general concept that you mentioned in the book about how outside investment will generally change your trajectory and how most people only talk about outside investment in a positive light, and you believe that to be a massive problem. I think that's an interesting thing because you have chosen never to take on outside investment with respect to Indy Hall. And I know with all of the things that have happened in co-working spaces, even pre-COVID, a lot of the bigger box uh, co-working spaces just were kind of falling apart because of bad financial management, bad decisions. So how have you seen other businesses affected by outside investment and what were the pitfalls that you would sort of warn people about? I mean, a lot of my exposure to that, there's the co-working side of things for sure. With co-working spaces, I've yet to see an example of where an investor-driven co-working model actually works because the investor is going to want to see maximized returns, right? That's how investors work. That's their job. I'm not faulting them. That's what they are there to do. But co-working spaces run on a sort of an interesting model of economics where there is financial gain to be made, but the impact itself is often from building connections and relationships between the individuals in the space, not to take ownership of their business, but so that their businesses can grow and thrive. And what I see in investor-driven models is people are optimizing for, well, how do we find a way to have that make us more money? And that starts optimizing for, you know, 
bigger teams and fast growing teams and teams who they themselves have taken investment funding and all those things. But all those things start to undermine the needs, the shared needs and desires of individuals who want to come together and they kind of cannibalize each other. So that's one example. And then in the other part of the world that I'm most exposed to is in the software world where software businesses are notoriously high margin. So therefore there's high opportunity. Uh, you know, there is very small incremental costs for each additional customers. And so the potential to build a machine that, you know, takes in a dollar and turns it into two or takes in a dollar and turns it into 200 software is extremely well leveraged for this. But what goes wrong here is that the person creating the software business kind of loses grip of the business that they created because now the business is optimized to start squeezing more and more money and maximize that return instead of a alternative. Again, it's these are not all better or worse, but again, the, the trade-off being, well, now you've got to work your ass off to serve the investor, start building features that the investor thinks are worth it, which are going to be features that drive high growth, but maybe not necessarily high retention. And maybe you end up attracting customers that you don't really like to serve. Maybe you end up growing a team that the business needs, but isn't the team that you want to lead. And I've seen so many situations where friends start businesses that are healthy businesses to begin and even bootstrapped healthy businesses to begin. And the second they take outside investment, the goals of the business changes and the relationship between the founder and the business changes. And if you're up for that game, I don't begrudge you from that for a second. But I think people choose that not realizing that it's going to change. They think they get to sail the same ship in the same direction. And that's just not not what you're signed up for anymore. So I don't actually begrudge people for choosing investment. What I get frustrated by is people not realizing that they're making a choice at all. They just think that is the logical only next step. Right. And if that is the mindset that you're going into this decision, you're not evaluating the options, you're not real, you're not considering the trade-offs and making the right decision for you and your long-term goals and just taking the investment because, well, it's a fast-growing business. Why not keep it? Let's strap, you know, a, a rocket to this thing and see how high it can go. If that's why you started it and what you really want to accomplish, cool. If you want a business that gives you the freedom to spend time with your friends and your family and doing the things that you love to do, this business is going to make you miserable. And if you're a creator, there's a good chance this business is going to change into something that you're no longer in control of. And there is nothing more heartbreaking than seeing the thing you created turn into something that you hate. And I have seen that so many that heartbreak so many times and it's not just that it's heartbreaking that it hurts me it's that it's heartbreaking and avoidable and i just want folks to go into these decisions eyes wide open and realize that it's important to decide what you, what the objective is and then make business decisions to serve that if you really want, if all you want in life is to have a venture backed company on your resume, well, I would question why. What is that really bringing? <laughs> and like, if that's really your thing, cool. I was still, I would ask you why. But if you have a really good answer for that, 
then cool. Uh, so long as you know exactly what you're signing up for. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, especially with the misalignment, right? And and that's probably if we had to pick, or at least if I had to pick a singular focus that can make or break your business is, are you providing something that others find value in and are therefore willing to pay you for, right? It's like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come as long as we add the fact that you must build it for them, not right. for yourself, right? Because all too often, you, you also see the flip side, which is people saying sort of in a complaint, I'm putting my hand out. Why is no one putting money in it? And what they really say is, oh, I created this wonderful thing and now nobody wants to pay for it. Or, or how do I go find customers? Exactly right. Exactly right. If you're having that problem, it's because you're not making them want to engage. It's an engagement issue, not necessarily a quality issue. It's you're not executing on an engagement level. And you're right. I think when you take on outside investment and in the franchise world, by the way, which I've worked in uh, for a little while now as an attorney, franchising is often related to the software world in that the multiplier from a revenue perspective is super high. You can turn around and scale a franchise very quickly, quickly in air quotes, three to five years, you can have a business that had maybe three units, let's just say pizza shops, right? You, you could have a business that had three units, three pizza shops, you turn it into a franchise and now it's got a hundred units in three to five years. That mm. can happen. So it's got that scalability like software, the problem is it usually takes a, a heavy financial investment that most owners don't have, and then they take on outside investment. Guess what? All of a sudden, you've sold your, your, your soul from an ownership interest perspective. And like you said, now you've just got a big yoke that you're dragging around that's on your back weighing you down. And it's no longer that three pizza shop business that you had and that you loved it becomes a whole other thing. It becomes about you making sure that the investors are getting their rate of return. And I think the difference is that you're really just thinking more holistically and that a lot of times people, you could blame it on our culture, you could blame it on, you know, there's just too many distractions. People aren't mindful, right? So they're never in that moment just taking a breath and saying, I can take a beat think about this and look at it, try to look at it from different angles and say, well, like you said earlier, what are my options here, right? It's not input, output, black and white. It's not one or, or zero. You, there, there are gradations here that we can talk about and that we can think about and look at these scenarios. Now, you don't want to suffer from you know uh, paralysis by analysis either That's and not make true. a decision. That's but it, it's it's the yin and yang, right? It's the finding that balance that works for you. So uh, awesome point. All right, let's shift to the 10K independence project because I definitely want to cover this. Tell us about the project, what it is, and how you got involved. So this will be the second time we talk about Jeff Bezos today. Um, the, a couple of years ago, uh, Jeff Bezos and his team at Amazon decided that they needed to open a headquarters on the East Coast to complement their Seattle headquarters. And they decided to accomplish that by having cities across the country compete against each other 
for the privilege of having Amazon choose their city uh, in exchange for, you know, incredible tax breaks and all these kinds of things that small businesses could only dream of. But that's neither here nor there. What was really interesting to me was, well, Philadelphia was on that list and we actually made it into the top 10. Uh, And among all the conversations that I was a part of and I was listening to, the thing that was most interesting to me wasn't actually the race to win Amazon. It was the fact that everybody was doing backflips for what was effectively 50,000 jobs. That was the offer. And there's obviously other things that come along with it and the economic impact of that. But 50,000 jobs was the bottom line that the Commerce Department at City Hall looks at and goes, we are obligated to pursue this because that many jobs is part of our spreadsheet, right? That's how economic development works. So 50,000 jobs is this new like baseline number. And I thought to myself, that number is not that big. I mean, it's big, but for national, like nine months of national press and cities across America scrambling to give away everything for it, I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But instead of focusing on Amazon's brilliant and ruthless negotiation, what I was interested in is the alternatives, which is, well, what other ways could we pitch 50,000 jobs to the city and do it in a way that wouldn't strip the city of its money, its integrity, uh, and, 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 and more importantly, that those make sure those jobs actually match the city, because those 50,000 jobs were going to likely import lots of people, which is not inherently a bad thing, but we live in the poorest big city in the country, there are 50,000 people in this city who need jobs that are not going to get those Amazon jobs. So these are not, you know, Amazon warehouse jobs. These are Amazon desk jobs, which pay great, but they're a bit choosier about who gets them. So how do we create 50,000 jobs for the city that Philadelphia actually is? And what if we even give ourselves the same timeline? Because with Amazon, they weren't bringing 50,000 jobs on day one, or even year one, it was 50,000 jobs over a 10 year period. So in spring of 2019, I sat down and wrote out a bunch of ideas that essentially were to attempt to match Amazon's pitch for 50,000 jobs by 2029, except I was going to do it our way. And what our way looks like is to start reverse engineering those 50,000 jobs into what actually creates 50,000 jobs. Well, one company doing it is certainly a way to do it. I would argue the worst way to do it. If that one company is Amazon, it's the absolute worst way to do it. Um, but you could also do 10, 5,000 person companies, right? Or five, 10,000 person companies, or you could just do the math all the way back down. At the other end of the spectrum, 50,000 entrepreneurs is not the right part of the equation either because not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone should be an entrepreneur. and that's got to be okay. People need jobs. People need opportunities. People need the support and guidance to grow in a job as we know them, whatever that means going forward. So somewhere in the middle is the answer. And the answer I came up with, it's not, um, the answer I come up with was helping 10,000 people become sustainably independent. And let's count those 10,000 as the first 10,000 towards the 50,000 goal. We're already 20% of the way there. But if some percentage of those 10,000 get to a point where their business is stable and healthy, the only thing keeping them from doing 
more good things for their clients is the hours in the day or their built in skills. So their opportunity to grow means hiring people, whether that's hiring people to who are already experts to do those skills that are in the ecosystem. So now you start having an interdependent network, but also training new people into those skills and having independent solo business owners start running apprenticeships for people who maybe don't have the on the job skills to get a job in that field, but go through a certification or take a course to learn the core skills. But now they need the hands on experience working with a solo business owner to actually learn how to do it in the real world. And if you, you know, let's let's run some numbers and say 20 percent of the 10,000 are going to actually create that opportunity. That means 80% of the 10,000 aren't. They're just going to stay solo business owners. And that's okay. That's still a healthy choice. And again, that is most businesses are sole businesses. That's just the, the way the numbers work. So for the 2,000 that do decide to bring on an apprentice or an employee or a contractor, whatever it is, you know, some will bring on one. But the people who bring on one, some percentage of them are going to bring on two. And some percentage of those are going to bring on five and so on and so forth. And somewhere in there, there might even be a 50,000 person company to grow from that original solo person. Because thinking about the world of economic developments, I, I go into economic development meetings. I sit with the Commerce Department and I look at their their economic development proposals and packages and incentives. And they're all designed to start with 10 and 20 person companies. And I ask them point blank, where do you think a 20, 30, 20 person company comes from in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and the past in the in more industrial industries, you needed 20 people because you had a factory to run and all the different things. But we don't live in that world anymore. And more and more businesses are started as solo businesses with some percentage of them having the possibility with the right infrastructure and support to become bigger businesses. And so the 10,000 Independence Project kind of wraps up this pitch and says, We've got to do three core things. Number one, we have to reframe entrepreneurship. Instead of go start the next Facebook, it's find a community or an audience that you are well suited to serve and start a business serving them. And let me show you a wide range of people doing that in a wide range of industries. So you can find somebody who looks like you, sounds like you, has a life like yours, and you can go, oh, shit, I can do this. That's number one. Number two is to help people get from surviving to thriving. A lot of people start and they scramble and maybe they get ahead and then they fall behind. And a lot of people get good at the thing they do, but they never really get at the business around the thing that they do. Those core business skills, everything from sales and marketing to hiring and delegating and everything in between are learnable skills that especially creative folks really struggle to learn. But if we make it easier for people to learn them and ideally have them learning from each other, right? Peer learning is probably one of the biggest opportunities to exchange knowledge that is untapped. Back to what you were saying earlier about you want to learn, go find a fellow entrepreneur because somebody reached an arm back to them and, and lifted them up before people want to pay that forward. And so we already have an independent business community and not just Indy Hall, all across the city of Philadelphia, people who would be willing to offer a little bit of their time and expertise to help somebody who's maybe only just a few steps behind them, but help people get from, I'm making enough money to pay the bills to, I make enough money to pay the bills and take a vacation and 
pay for health insurance and uh, save for retirement, right? Full stack that it's as good or better than what you could get in a full time job. That's part two, surviving and thriving. And then part three is for the people who are thriving. Let's teach them and show them how to grow their business with a heavy focus on apprenticeship, not exclusively apprenticeship, but I think apprenticeship is the massively undertapped opportunity that the again, especially now COVID 2020, there's people that the skills they had and the job they had don't exist anymore. And reskilling is like the top conversation in the workforce world. But nobody's actually talking about how to do it. And the way there's talking, the way they are talking about it, in my opinion, is total bullshit. Because most of the people talking about it haven't actually had to reskill either. They went to school yeah. for the thing. And so right. they've not been through the reskilling process. And so I just don't think the the, the approach is realistic. Whereas what I, I can speak from my own lived experience, I learned by doing with the support of other people that learned how to do it before me. And that's how the world worked before people went to universities to learn how to have a job. Right. So let's get back to basics gang. And that's what this is like this, this 10,000 independence project is a long arc shared North star with some numbers to get a bunch of people that are sometimes competing with each other for resources, nonprofits in the workforce space, things like that to say, look, if we are all working towards 10,000 independents and 50,000 jobs, I don't care what organization's logo is on your business card. If we agree on the goal, then we have opportunities to collaborate. And that's an area that I do know very well. So, you know, part of the dream is that, you know, maybe the tiny MBA is in the hands of every person that's going through that at some point. But the truth is, is it's not Alex Hillman's goal and Andy Hall's goal and stacking the bricks goal. This is a regional goal in order for us to hit 50,000. There needs to be other people who aren't me and and not just because from a numbers perspective, but like there's a lot of people that will look at me and just turn off. They're like, I don't I, well, I don't want to learn from this guy. He doesn't look like me. He doesn't sound like me. He doesn't have my experience. And you're 100 percent right. Means we got to find the person who does look like you, who does have your experience, who can tell you their version of the fundamentals that you need to hear so you can go, cool, I'm ready now. Let's do this. Um, so that's the that's the the long arc of of the 10,000 independence project. And I think how it ties a lot of this stuff together. If somebody wants to get involved in help, whether it's are, are you taking donations for this? How are you structuring it from a business perspective? Is it an NPO or is it just right now just kind of a, a project that's out there? Yeah, at some point in the future, this may become its own standalone nonprofit. I'm I like to do things incrementally. So right now I'm treating it as an alliance building effort. So if you are a person uh, anywhere in that equation, you're a person who wants to be one of the 10,000 independents, you're an existing independent who wants to learn how to grow a team in a way that is maybe different than you've thought of before. If the only thing holding you back is time and bodies, but hiring and management people scares the shit out of you. I, I want to get to know you and I want to figure out if our, if what we're thinking about can help you and what help you really do need. Um, if you've got an interesting story about how you started your own path, uh, we need people, especially if you were not a guy who looks like me or Tony, right. Um, and not a guy at all, right. If you were a person in the city of Philadelphia who has created your own path, I want to hear from you because 
I, I want more people to hear your story because I want them to be inspired to try just like you were. And, and to be honest, you know, it's, it's not just a hero's journey. It's what's the hard stuff along the way. What's the stuff you screwed up and what did, what did you learn and how did you learn it? Um, if you are an organization that already does this work, I'm also very interested. Uh, the easiest thing I can say right now is to email me alex at ndhall.org. This doesn't officially have a website, although in the next few weeks that will change. Uh, I'm going to say today that the website will be live at 10k.city. That's the number 10k.city. And that will give you sort of a a brief overview, much briefer than the last 15 minutes of me rambling on of those three pillars, inspiring people to create a job for themselves, surviving to thriving, creating the next generation of job creators, which one or ones are you self-identify here are the projects we're doing inside of those, but then also who are the individuals and organizations that are already doing that work and how do we get them in touch with each other or get you in touch with them. So 10k.city will be the the home for that online. And if you've got a way, any way you want to get involved, uh, email me, alex at indiehall.org. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much. I just want to remind people the Tiny MBA is a pocket-sized book of bite-sized lessons, including topics like sales and why people buy, money and success psychology, branding and marketing, professional decision-making, investment, scaling, and hiring, dealing with clients, customers, partners, and competition, aka stakeholders, how to play the long game, and much, much more. Definitely check it out. You can find it on Amazon. Um, how can they get the paper copies if somebody wants a physical version instead of the Kindle version? Totally. The physical version is available at tiny.mba. Or if you Google the tiny MBA, anything that comes up that's not the Amazon link, uh, we'll, we'll get you to that page. Uh, yeah, and then we'll we'll ship you a copy anywhere in the world, shipping worldwide. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, and hopefully people will reach out and get involved in the 10K Independence Project. Thanks, Tony. It was always great to catch up with you, and I look forward to hearing from people that are listening.